Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at Long Now. In today's episode, we have Nathaniel Rich exploring the idea of second nature. There's this idea that the expression second nature, I think, evokes one's you know, taking for granted that this is the natural world as we know it, and any deviation from it seems odd. But what, what so many of these the, the people I write about in, in, the, in these stories encounter is that they realize that actually in order to get back to something that, that, does, that is more natural, that, that is more biodiverse, that is more ethical, we actually have to deviate quite a lot from what we've been doing. You just heard an excerpt of Nathaniel Rich, our featured speaker for today's episode. Before we dive into the question of what is nature with Nathaniel Rich, I want to welcome you to this new version of our podcast. When I say new, that's not exactly the whole truth. We've been around since before the birth of podcasting, with a deep archive of talks you can dig through on any rainy day. But from here forward, we're going to experiment with some new formats. When we started 17 years ago, this podcast was archival recordings of our lecture series here in San Francisco. But the series and our organization has come a long way since then, and it's time for our podcast to finally reflect that. We'll continue bringing you deep thinkers and themes, but we'll now also include highlights from the past, questions for the future, and hopefully an even more compelling experience. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not, thank you for being a long-term listener and thinker. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit and is entirely supported by donors and members like you. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If you're not already a member, please consider joining us. For less than a price of a good book or a new movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Now, let's explore our next long-term thinker. Since the beginning of human civilization, humans have been affected by and affecting the nature that surrounds us. Every year, new research comes out that shows that even thousands of years ago, humans were engaging in ecosystem-level interventions with our environment, challenging our notion of what we can call wild or pristine. Our featured speaker today is the journalist Nathaniel Rich. His latest book, Second Nature, explores stories of humans hoping to find their place in a seemingly post-natural world. What does he mean exactly by post-natural? One of the chapters of his book explores the phenomenon of a little beach north of us here in the Bay Area known as Glass Beach. Its shores are filled with beautiful little pieces of sea glass, which are actually nothing more than old, polished trash. Up until the 60s, the site was an active dump, and what remains are old metal, glass, and pottery that have been buffed by the shore. And people love it. They love it so much that there's a conservation movement being led to replenish the sea glass and keep tourists from pocketing it for themselves. And so that leads us to a question. What is nature? If we're going to restore it or conserve it, how do we first define it? Or as Nathaniel says, I feel like this kind of eerie tension between, you know, what's natural, what's unnatural. You know, when we talk about beautiful things, how much are we admiring ourselves versus admiring nature? Um, and how are these things in, enmeshed and, and how do you detangle them? But I do feel that right now we're on this fascinating precipice where um, 
you know, we've already altered the world in so many ways, but we're only now starting to take responsibility for having done so. And only now beginning to think about, you know, if, if, if it's inevitable that we're altering the world, you know, how can we do so responsibly? How can we do so ethically? And that's what we're getting into today. In the following interview, we have two guests from Revive and Restore, a project that was incubated at Longnow and is now a separate and very active nonprofit with its own range of projects. Ryan Phelan, director of Revive and Restore, and Ben Novak, Revive and Restore's lead scientist, chat with Nathaniel about what we define as nature and the moral consequences that come with addressing, altering, and defining humanity's relationship with it. We're bringing you excerpts, but you can watch the whole conversation on our website. After, we'll go a bit deeper into some of the projects of Revive and Restore, whose mission is to use genetic technologies to aid in conservation practices of endangered and extinct species. We are facing a crisis, an extinction crisis, a loss of diversity crisis. This technology is kind of scary, and it's kind of unknown. But it's also clear that what we've been doing so far is not enough. I would argue that now's the time to change. That's later with Beth Shapiro. First, here's Ryan Phelan opening up the conversation with Nathaniel. Well, Nathaniel, welcome to a Long Now talk. I'm here uh, in San Francisco at the Interval, and it's really a pleasure to get to interview you. Uh, in a sense, um, Ben Novak and I get to turn the tables on you. Having been interviewed by you back in 2014 um, for your article in the New York Times Magazine, the mammoth cometh. Um, it was a major cover story for us. And, and I must say, uh, quite controversial at the time, because you really probed deep on something that was still very early on in its gestation, the bringing back of a passenger pigeon. And we were delighted when we heard that you were actually um, going to include that article or an update on that article in your new book called Second Nature. It's really a thrill to, to be back with both of you, even if virtually um, the the story that I you know reported so many years ago about revive and restore um, was so uh, foundational in my thinking for second nature. Of course, when I was reporting that piece, I had no idea that I was going to write a book. It was really in our conversations, my conversations with both of you, as well as with Stuart Brand, where I I was first really given the language um, to articulate uh, some some themes that had really been um, you know, puzzling me, obsessing me, fascinating me for some time. And it was it was really through the process of writing that story that I began to see a kind of larger, um, you know, landscape uh, unfold before me. And I found myself returning to this, uh, these same themes over and over again um, in the years since. And and the results of that work, really the work of, of the last decade um, is, is second nature. Well, since that time, you've interviewed an amazing cast of characters for this book. Um, and I must say, when I first started the book, it seemed like quite a disparate group of uh, interviews from talking to people who were involved in the oil and gas industry uh, from Southern California uh, to Louisiana to uh, artists working uh, you know, with um, fluorescent green rabbits. Um, it's it's a, the full gamut. And it's been really interesting as one reads through it, connecting those dots in how we intervene in nature. Um, I'd love for you to talk us through a little bit about how you structured that that theme throughout of second nature. Yeah, so the, the basic 
idea of the book and and the you know basic problem I was trying to investigate is that you know there's nothing uh, natural about the natural world anymore. That anything that we describe uh, as nature or wilderness um, doesn't hold up under scrutiny to um, our, our definitions of those words. And, and, you know, the, the, the basic idea is we've reconfigured, um, every part of the planet from the, you know, every cubic inch of soil to, to the atmosphere through our activities, sometimes, uh, through neglect, sometimes through malice, um, sometimes in through some kind of misplaced virtue. And so the stories are about, um, in the the first the first section of the book is this realization that this has happened, which I think is a very, you know, disillusioning and unsettling idea that mm-hmm. that took a long time for me to really come to terms with personally. Uh, the second section of stories is about people who are navigating the basically the weirdness or the the uncanny quality of our reality today when we're living it in this time where um, there's so much unnatural about about our our natural world. And and the final section. Um, is about people mm-hmm. who, like yourselves, who are trying um, as best as they can to use some of these incredibly powerful technologies um, that we've we've with which we've you know resculpted the the planet um, and trying to use those same powers to restore um, what we've lost um, or to make the the world feel at least more natural, even if the idea of, of you know natural is something of a of a simulacrum. And it's really um, insightful the way that in each of these different chapters, you look at this shifting baseline challenge, whether it's uh, the trash on the beach that seems to have been historic for some people to the oyster fishermen there in Louisiana who feel like this has been a way of life forever. And yet, you know, it wasn't. That land was all underwater and then it shifted and now it's returning to forest and or becoming forest, I guess, not returning. It's so dramatic, the changes, and yet people holding on to what they believe uh, is their, you know, moral right to maintain. I live in New Orleans, one of the, the cities most threatened by climate change um, in the world, at least and certainly in the Western world. And um, our, our fate depends on um, having this robust barrier of of marshland south of new orleans and the southern coast of louisiana that marshland has been vanishing uh for about a hundred years um for a few reasons the the largest ones are um the control of the mississippi river uh preventing the river from flooding over time so when it floods it replenishes the soil builds it up um, and also the work of the oil and gas industry carving up the marsh to get to, to oil wells. And so the state has this incredible 50-year plan, extremely, I mean, talk about long-term planning. It's a 50-year plan, but it's perpetually renewing. So it always looks at the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And the idea is quite literally to rebuild the coast. And the, the best way to do that is by altering the flow of the Mississippi River um, basically opening up some control, controlled floods uh, through the Delta to recreate land. Um, and it has unanimous support in Louisiana, uh, except for among the people whose, whose uh, lives and, and homes are most threatened by sea level rise, which are the people at the southernmost part of the river, um, who are terrified by this, this plan because they think that it will 
alter fishing conditions. Mm -hmm. And most of these people who live down there are fishermen. Um, and to a certain extent, they're right. It will change, you know, what kind of species they'll be able to fish and, and to some extent where they'll be able to live. Um, and yet it's the kind of, uh, plan that is essential if the whole state is going to survive, including the part of, of the land where they live. And so for me, it's, it's a per this, this drama that's going on now, this fight between these poor fishermen and the state of Louisiana and basically everyone else in Louisiana is a perfect example of the kind of thorny moral questions that are raised by even the most prudent um, efforts to intervene in, in some kind of natural devastation. Um, and so it did, it, I, in, in thinking about our conversation today, I mean, it, it raised a question that I, I wanted to pose to both of you, which is that when you, you know, are there any examples in the work that you do in, in trying to bring back species, um, endangered species or extinct species, where, you know, you have a clear argument for why doing so would be beneficial. And yet, even in the best case scenario, it opens up some negative impacts for some small subset of, say, the people or some small part of an ecosystem. Um, and I wondered if you had gotten to that point in any of your projects where it doesn't change your mind about whether or not to move forward, but it, it, it does create new problems that, that have to be addressed in some, in some way. <laughs> I'll let Ryan take that one away because I'll just answer quickly that, of course, um, we have not gotten to a point where we have passenger pigeons or mammoths ready to go on the landscape. So a lot of people, um, even Fish and Wildlife Service a few years ago said, this is so theoretical right now, we're not going to really you know, elevate it to concern. But every time a species is restored somewhere or there's a plan talked about these things, there's there's a subset of people who, <laughs> whose lives are going to change. And it's always a, a concern to them. Is it going to be a negative change, benign or neutral? But in one of our newer projects, since we first spoke back then, there's definitely uh, an economic sector that does not want change. And Ryan is very intimately familiar with that. One of the projects that has been uh, near and dear to us for the last three years at Revive and Restore is the um, trying to help save the horseshoe crab. Literally, um, you know, one of the oldest uh, species on the planet that has prevailed is almost identical to what it was as a fossil millions of years ago. And uh, every year it spawns along the eastern uh, coastline and its eggs and are used as an incredible resource to uh, migratory birds that, you know, it's a very, very important ecosystem um, occurrence. And I learned um, three or four years ago that the horseshoe crabs were actually bled um, by companies to use this very unique property, this protein in their blood that is a natural endotoxin detector. So it helps secure and has secured the safety of vaccines for literally um, 30 years now. Um, before that, they used rabbits for testing. But the truth is, there's been a synthetic alternative, a recombinant DNA product that's identical to that protein that is so unique to the horseshoe crab blood. But there's a vested interest uh, in continuing to bleed these crabs that cost basically nothing because they're just a wild animal extract um, and to bring it to the pharmaceutical industry to make sure all our drugs and vaccines are safe. 
um, that vested interest in doing business the old way um, has just kept this progress from happening in the level that it should. And luckily, the good news to the story is that Eli Lilly has been at the forefront as a pharmaceutical company, even now has a COVID-19 antibody treatment that has been moved all the way through production using the recombinant DNA product. So, you know, we're thrilled at that, but we need all pharmaceutical companies to be doing this, not just one. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't help but think of, I mean, there's a, there's a very close analog in, in one of the stories I wrote about in, in Second Nature, which is the, the, first, the first piece is about DuPont and this incredible story of a lawyer uh, who is a, a defense lawyer for chemical companies in Cincinnati from a, a very conservative firm who, because of a family um, uh, association with his, his grandmother, um, he took on this, this case for a cattle farmer in West Virginia who thought that the local DuPont uh, company was poisoning his cattle. And nobody believed him. He was in this big DuPont town in West Virginia. <clears throat> and this lawyer uh, named Rob Balot, using, um, because he knew these companies inside and out, because he defended chemical companies, um, over the course of you know years and ultimately decades, he was able to unravel this incredible, uh, I think it's safe to say it's one of, if not the, the most, one of the greatest, uh, if not the greatest, um, corporate conspiracies in, mm -hmm. in, in American history, which is that in the in the manufacture of Teflon and other, you know, products that, that DuPont made billions of dollars off of a year in profit, um, they were using this man-made chemical called PFOA that doesn't biodegrade and that is a toxin and is now, years later, um, <clears throat> part of our biological inheritance. It's in it's in all of our our bloodstream, um, because we've been exposed at such high levels over over decades. Um, but the connection to the to to the crabs is that what he found at one point in his in his research, and he read millions of pages of documents of internal memos from Dupont, is that uh, by the I think it was by the early '90s they'd been making this stuff for since the '50s. By the mm -hmm. early '90s, uh, Dupont understood that this was poisonous, this was this yeah. was toxic, and that um, people were, were dying and having all kinds of horrible health conditions who were exposed to it. And they had a replacement. They had what was seen as a benign, <clears throat> excuse me, a relatively benign replacement chemical that did the same thing, but broke down much more quickly. And so it didn't stay in your body. And they doing business as usual. I mean, it's and outrageous. They, yeah. And the executive said, the, the health people were like, oh, we should definitely do this. And and the business executive said, well, we're already on the hook for decades of this. If we get caught, as they ultimately oh. were by the lawyer, we're already culpable. So we're not going to increase our culpability. And furthermore, if we change to this new unproven chemical, who knows, maybe the products won't be as good. And mm -hmm. that was enough. Just, just the sort of fear of some slight alteration in their um, in their business plan um, that might cost them some part of their you know billion dollars a year profits. That was enough for them not to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, you definitely yeah. ha have a theme going through your book of uh, of some of the downside of corporate uh, behavior that 
uh, is, is really sobering. I have to say, Robert uh, Balot, um, it becomes a real hero in that chapter. And I like the way you close saying that he now is representing uh, you know, 230 million Americans uh, in his next lawsuit on behalf of, of all Americans, um, ensuring that they do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, he he's become for me. He he was a kind of avatar for all of us in a certain sense, in that he had this kind of awakening moment where mm -hmm. everything that he thought to be true in his case, he thought that, for instance, corporations um, wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to to behave responsibly. That um, you know they wanted to follow regulations and so on. Um, was was false and 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 furthermore that you know the idea that we were all um that we weren't affected by some of the, this malfeasance was also turned out to be false and and he responds with this um a level of anger i think and frustration and bitterness that mm -hmm. i think is is an important part of of how uh, a lot of us feel when we are forced to reckon with some of these these realities. It, you know, a lot of the early stories in the book, I think when people are having this moment of reckoning, that's a common <laughs> response. I think that's, um, uh, you know, I identify with that, a feeling of betrayal um, that, so, that what we've thought is not true anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So the transformation that Blot goes through as a corporate defense attorney now working on behalf of all Americans, in a sense, and all living organisms, um, is an interesting shift. And there's another hopeful one going on with people that are traditional conservationists. And you have a chapter in your book um, uh, where you refer to the, um, the the wasting, and it's about the sunflower sea star here all along our western coast of uh, California, all the way up to Alaska. Then in 2013 had an incredible uh, dieback from this wasting disease. It is still considered to have an unknown origin. Some assume it's climate change, acidification, an unknown pathogen. Um, and I, I thought it would be interesting to give you a little bit of an update from Revive and Restore because we're not just the de-extinction folks. Um, we also are very much about genetic rescue. and. Um, uh, two years ago, we started a Catalyst Science Fund to fund researchers working at this bleeding edge of research bringing biotech to conservation. And we've been funding at the University of California at Merced two scientists, um, Mike Dawson and um, uh, Lauren Shuttlebutt, um, who are working on the underlying genomics that are uh, potentially making sea stars um, more susceptible to this wasting syndrome. And I think this is the awakening that many conservationists have come to, which is that the oceans that they've been protecting um, are not the same as they were a decade ago. Coral, kelp, sea stars are going through major shifts and they're witnessing it in their own eyes as they go and dive and see a completely different now urchin barren um, and realizing that maybe they have to deploy new tools for conservation um, as in the case of genomics and potentially even synthetic biology, gene editing. You know, I think, I think in this entire conversation, uh, uh, we, we've kind of hit at 
what what you said, Nathaniel. This this very human condition. You know, we it's easy to target a corporation and say, oh, they looked the other way for a profit, but it really is innate in every human discipline that that we we so oftentimes have solutions to our problems for decades without using them because business as usual feels good. It's rewarding right now. And there's no crisis point. Even if it's slowly building up, we'll be like, oh, well, it's, it's slow, it's slow. And then all of a sudden you have a heat wave come through in 2013, wipes out more than 90% of the sea stars. And now we have to do something you know, very, very extreme about it, um, which needs new tools, right? So I mean, Amsterdam and the Netherlands has been controlling the entire ocean for decades. And we never adopted any of that in the United States. Um, that that so many of these tools we need are right now, but we wait to the point of crisis, and then we need something new. You know, the final story in in Second Nature is called Green Rabbit, and it's about this this art scandal um, years ago where a Brazilian uh, Chicago artist named Eduardo Katz created this. Um, artwork that was a, a, a glow in the dark, um, like neon green bunny rabbit. And it turned, uh, and people freaked out and they said, you know, how dare you design a, a species for, you know, for art, for artistic um, response and, and uh, this is unethical and so on. And what he pointed out is that he hadn't actually done anything. He just, you know, these rabbits were being created by French institutes to, to do research on vaccines and, and other thing and other kinds of, of human medicine. And it was only that, that cats brought it forward into the public glare um, that people fr freaked out. But as you know, he hadn't, he hadn't created something new. He had, he had reflected what was going on already. And I think that, I think there's real value in that kind of work because I think most of us don't really who aren't in your sort of world of, of, you know, on the, on the, on the front lines of this technological advancement, don't really think ethically or morally uh, or even conceptually about some of these vast changes that are ongoing. And I think there's, there's a role there for writing and particular, particularly imaginative writing, not just pure reporting, but, but, you know, immersive uh, narrative um, that allows us to really work through some of these these major transformations that are ongoing, and and I think it's it's a necessary part, frankly, of our, you know the cultural response to these 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 issues, and that you know we won't adapt these new technologies, many of which are hugely important for our you know survival, um, until we're really able to think think through them in a more profound way. Exactly. You know, um, I, I love that chapter for a number of reasons. One. Katz, um, uh, the artist you're referring to, says the function of art is to expose areas of life that we don't have the proper language to describe. And that uh, very often when a new problem emerges, it, it, experts in the field develop their own consensus on it, but it takes much longer for that technology to be actually adopted uh, by the public. But by the time it's already out there in the culture, the technology has moved ahead. There's this there's this lag that happens. And I think that, um, you know, it certainly was the case with in vitro fertilization that uh, once it was out there, um, it moved very fast through the, through the society. And I suspect the same thing will be happening with precision editing uh, 
Well, yeah, we're, we're in, I believe, 2020, 2021 are the first years of human clinical trials for gene editing therapies, mm -hmm. just less than eight years, less than less than 10 years after gene right. editing from CRISPR-Cas9 was actually harnessed. But not for heritable um, Correct. changes. Yeah. So uh, that'll come. And that'll well, come it's, it's, species it, first, other species first. And that was an idea also that was in that that I, I first thought about um, thanks to one of our original conversations because I remember um, Ryan that you speaking about um, what you were doing not just as a you know science project or and not mm -hmm. just as a conservation project but as um, a kind of storytelling project and I, I found that very fascinating that that it wasn't enough to to you know make your arguments about why a certain innovation should happen. Um, or to perfect the science, you also had to bring the culture along with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that's really lost by by most people who who are who are doing the kind of work. Well, not that in, not a lot of people are doing exactly the kind of work that you're doing, but but on you know on the front lines of these these technological shifts, really don't stop to think about that or or to think about it in any depth. And I, I think there's, there's real value in that exercise. And I would say, in fact, it's, it's necessary that we have to have these kinds of thought experiments. And for most people who might not understand, you know, CRISPR or, or you know, Cas9, uh, to think about, to think in those terms is, is actually valuable. And, and it's, it's a, you know, it's an example, again, that I think comes from conservation, um, where you have every, you know, every conservation group has as its mascot, some cuddly animal, um, and there's a reason for that. And I think it, it actually serves a, a purpose um, that that one should take seriously. You know, what's really interesting there is, is you know, you talked about your book being timeless. And, and as I read the last page, that all finally makes sense to me now because I read the last sentence and I was kind of like, it didn't end. I, I, I felt like <laughs> it never <there> was, does. <laughs> I, was, I was like, did, and, and then Ryan and I talked a little bit about it and she was like, oh, well, and she kind of made me understand it a bit more. And my head was a little bit too much in the science um, and not enough in the art. And, and, you know, the guy talks about, you know, art lagging behind, you know, reality, whereas we've done something kind of fundamentally different with de-extinction. We see it as an extension of things conservation has already been doing, but we're bringing in new tools. And because we announced we wanted to do this before it was done, there's actually been a, like a wave of art and discussion and dialogue where the mascot is de-extinction and it hasn't been reality yet. I think we've done something really incredibly different. And in that line of, and that's where the storytelling is so important and, and why I'm really happy that your book is coming out with that one chapter about it embedded in this bigger context, because the storytelling now becomes really, really imperative. And a lot of people have been missing the conservation connection. We should probably wrap it up. And um, I, I wanted to ask you one more question about the title of this book, Second Nature. Um, say a little bit more what you actually meant by that. That's a good question. Um, second Nature, I think, has to, it, it picks up on the idea that um, one takes what's familiar as for granted, you know, that, that conditions, I mean, Ben, you were talking about ecology uh, in the 1930s, taking for granted that this this fallen state of the, the planet was the natural you know baseline. Um, I think we all do that in our own way. And so there's this idea that, you know, 
the expression second nature, I think evokes one's, you know, taking for granted that this is just, this is, this is the natural world as we know it. Um, and any deviation from it, um, seems odd. Um, but, but what, what so many of these, the, the people I write about in, in the, in these stories encounter is that they realize that actually, you know, in order to get back to something that, that does, that is more natural, that, that is more biodiverse, that is, um, more ethical, we actually have to deviate quite a lot from what we've been doing. Um, and so you get to the idea of a second nature of a new, a new relationship with nature that acknowledges that, that difficult reality and acknowledges that, um, what, you know, we have to think in a longer time frame. We have to think beyond just the immediate moment. We have to think both about, you know, the recent and distant past and, and the, the near and distant future. Um, and with that, I think becomes a new understanding, uh, of the natural world, um, and understanding of a new kind of ecology. Really. I think we're at, at the beginning of a new phase of, of ecological thinking, uh, in this country that, that, you know, organizations like like Revive and Restore are are sort of pushing pushing us to consider um, that intervention is not always a bad thing, and in fact, in many cases, it's it's necessary, and it's it's you know that that some sometimes these these what seem to be really radical departures uh, from the status quo are actually um, necessary to preserve. Mm -hmm. Um, what we want to, what, what we worry about having lost. Well, Long now always says we want to make long-term thinking automatic and common, not difficult and rare. And I think one of the things that Second Nature has done a really great job at pointing out is how important our thinking about the long-term is and how equally important is the short-term actionability. So thank you for bringing all this to the forefront in, in such an engaging way. Well, thank, thank you for your help in inspiring this. It, it, I really owe a lot to um, those early conversations that I had with you and, and, and from learning about the work that you're, you're doing it was very um, central to the conception of this, this book. So I'm, I'm grateful, grateful for this chance to talk with you both. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Nathaniel. Thank you, Long Now. Thank you. Ryan Phelan, who you just heard speaking with Nathaniel, is director of Revive and Restore, the leading wildlife conservation organization promoting the incorporation of biotechnologies into standard conservation practice. You also just heard from Ben Novak, the lead scientist in the organization, who is head of the flagship project, The Great Passenger Pigeon Comeback. You can watch the video of their full conversation at Long Now's YouTube channel, along with other conversations around the de-extinction movement and more. To give you a little more background on the projects of Revive and Restore, we'd like to highlight a portion of a Long Now talk by Beth Shapiro. Beth is an evolutionary biologist who serves as an advisor to Revive and Restore. Her full talk, How to Clone a Woolly Mammoth, was given in O2015. Here's Beth giving us a little more insight into the why behind genetic engineering for conservation. Thinking about why is probably more important initially than thinking about how. Why do we want to bring these animals back? I'm going to return to the mammoth for a moment, because 
I actually think there are some compelling reasons why we might consider bringing a mammoth back, or at least creating an elephant that can live in places where a mammoth once lived. So the first reason is ecological. There is a place in northeastern Siberia called Pleistocene Park. This is a, a, a big a cluster of, of, of land that um, uh, a Russian scientist, Sergei Zimov, has uh, started purchasing since the mid-1990s near his home in Chersky. And he's preparing this land for the return of the Ice Age animals, like mammoths and woolly rhinos and things like that. And so far he has bison that he imported from Canada, some horses, and also about five different species of deer. And he's been studying these animals and the effect of these animals on the landscape that he has there. And he's been doing what are called exclosure experiments here. And what he's done is he's had some parts of Pleistocene Park where these animals aren't allowed to graze and other parts where they are. And what Sergei has shown is that just, just having these animals on the landscape, just over the course of a couple years, has turned this relatively poor poorly productive tundra into a rich grassland that's actually capable of supporting these herbivores. In a sense, these animals have created and maintained their own environment just by walking along the dirt, by turning up that soil, by recycling nutrients and distributing seeds. And not only is there sufficient land for these animals to be able to live throughout the winter, but he's seen other species like saiga antelope that are relatively rare and endangered, given that there's not very much for them to eat, come and visit the park because it is such a rich grassland. And he maintains that creating these animals and having them on this landscape can put that Siberian tundra, that rich land that supported all those animals, back on that landscape, providing habitat for populations that are alive today, but in danger of extinction because their habitat is declining. The second reason is more sentimental. Now, few of us can imagine a world without elephants. But Asian elephants are endangered. They're on the endangered species list. Their habitat is declining as populations grow, and we're having trouble protecting them from poaching. What if we could use this technology not to bring mammoths back, since we can't? We're never going to create something that's 100% identical to a species that is no longer alive. But what if we could use this technology instead to save elephants? What if we could take an elephant and insert a few genes here and there to allow it to live in temperate North America or Europe or somewhere like Asia? Perhaps then we could hold on to elephants long enough to find a way to protect their habitat and environment so that they can be reestablished as healthy populations, not on the endangered species list. But why stop there? This technology is incredibly powerful. The ability to learn a sequence of DNA and inject it into another species that's still alive today. We are facing a crisis, an extinction crisis, a loss of diversity crisis. This technology is kind of scary and it's kind of unknown, but it's also clear that what we've been doing so far is not enough. Species continue to go extinct, habitat continues to decline. I would argue that now's the time to change. Now's the time to take advantage of these technologies that are potentially powerful new weapons in our arsenal against extinction 
and use them, use them in our fight against the declining diversity that we know is going on in the world today. And I'd like to highlight one project that I know is one of the keystone projects of Revive and Restore as just an idea of how we might be able to use this technology, not to bring something extinct back to life, but to save things that are alive today. And that's the black-footed ferrets. Black-footed ferrets nearly went extinct a couple decades ago because of a hunting and extermination program. Today, there are black-footed ferrets, but they're genetically almost identical to each other. They've been through a very recent population bottleneck. And now, there's a disease that's killing them. What if we could use this technology and go back in time and sequence genomes of black-footed ferrets that were sampled prior to the population bottleneck or that are in museum collections from hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of years ago and sample the parts of the genome that provide increased immunity, diversity at the MHC complex, for example, in this particular animal. And then you could take that bit of DNA and inject it, a genetic booster shot, if you will, into black-footed ferrets that are still alive today. Potentially, you'd be able to give these animals, this living, endangered population, a fighting chance against the disease that's killing them. This, I think, this capacity to save ecosystems and species today that are in danger of extinction is, I think, the most powerful application of this technology. As mentioned, Beth Shapiro's talk was given in O2015. In December of O2020, Revive and Restore did just that and helped to clone a black-footed ferret from a frozen tissue sample gathered before the genetic bottleneck. The ferret's name is Elizabeth Ann, and she is one of the first animals ever cloned in the world for conservation purposes. It is an amazing example of how genetic technologies can solve some sticky conservation problems that until recently were considered totally unsolvable. You can find out more about these projects at reviveandrestore.org. This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talks you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This movement would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Cast Music and Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now, an album that was created as part of our work in building the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Butch McKenless, J.D. Davis, Andrew Warner, Forrest Pound, Justin Oliphant, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view. 